0: Hey, pasa mufasa? Welcome to Mycopreneur, a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker, and today we're getting down in Fungi Funky Town with the one and only Jasper from Fungi Academy. And we're doing it live and in person, the only way it should be done when opportunity allows. I'm down here in beautiful Lake Atitlan, Guatemala, hanging with the Fungi Academy family this week and we're having a ball. For those outside of the loop, Fungi Academy is a sacred mycology school located in the bucolic lakeside hamlet of Zunu on the banks of Lake Atitlan, Guatemala. And it's an international collective of passionate earthlings working together to bring the magic of fungi to the world. And boy, are they doing exactly that. Jasper and crew have a variety of online and in person course offerings that focus on sacred mycology cultivation techniques, psychedelic journey work, and more in the pipeline. He's a wonderful fellow and a world class conversationalist, especially when we're talking about mushrooms, which, lucky for all of us, is the raison d'etre for our dialogue today. He is of Dutch origin, which is why I'll be referring to him by the phonetically and etymologically correct Jesper throughout our dialogue. So let's get the show on the road, Michael Files. Kate pasa, Mufasa. Welcome Jesper of Fungi Academy to the Michaelpreneur Podcast.
1: Thanks, Dennis. Good to be here. I have
0: been here all week having a grand time and it's so exciting to see in person what I've been following online through the Fungi Academy newsletter and your online courses and all that. So thank you so much for receiving me and a group of friends graciously this
1: week. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Good to have you.
0: For sure. We were perusing the Fungi Academy library, which is quite extensive. There's a lot of psychedelic literature, a lot of the classics, right? And you made a comment that the ineffability of the psychedelic experience is hard to capture in words, right? Do you think that new mediums like Instagram, Instagram Live have supplanted traditional psychedelic literature for connecting with today's audiences?
1: To an extent, right? Like, I I don't think the book will ever be replaced. And I love reading these things. And I I love even going through Erowit and, like, hearing people try to go through their own psychedelic experiences and make more sense of it. And I do think like platforms like a podcast or Instagram Live or even uh, like Clubhouse these days, it's like, it's more free flowy. So you get more into that free flowy mind, state of mind, wherein you can, more, with more emotion, speak to your experience, right? And like, if you're just reading somebody's words, you don't know what emotion, maybe they can explain their emotion. But like, I think that's also why audiobooks are really and especially if the author is doing it themselves and they're not too focused on only pronouncing things very or like being done with the audio recording as fast as possible but like putting that emotion in right like that's part of our most of our communication like only seven percent is choice of words the rest is all like body language and intonation so how we say things and i think like especially talking about psychedelic experiences that intonation is really important because you hear somebody's, you feel somebody's emotions, even from a distance. Fantastic. And I
0: wish my wife would
1: understand that because I always try to play Terrence
0: McKenna audiobooks for her. She's like, this guy's nasally voice is just dry. <laughs> you gotta listen. No, we have a great time. So last week, we were together here with a small group, and you mentioned a concept that really set my imagination on fire this concept of mycofiltration. Mm. Are you familiar with people working in this space, or has anyone here at Fungi Academy? around with microfiltration.
1: So microfiltration is a really new concept and the main thing is you have to have like a solid way to test if this is actually working and to my understanding what's happening right now with microfiltration is people are testing it in like slow flowing currents of like uh, creeks and right now right, right next to us maybe even here a little bit in the back there's this river flowing and it's going pretty fast and it will most likely break apart the mycelium and, and all these things. But it, we are playing around with an, a setup that we can eventually hopefully create on the property where we like dilute some of the water from the river onto the property in a more free-flowing, slow-flowing setup and have a, a lab test before and after and see if there's actually a, a, a difference. But like if you look at, for example, the 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 common oyster mushrooms, They're active hunters, right? They hunt for nematodes and other parasites, microscopic parasites that live a lot in water. And there's just this connection of like, it makes a lot of sense that it would work. And there are some people uh, studying mainly in the uh, University of Washington, I believe, that have found lots of success with parasites being filtered out through water. But now it's the big question, like, how do we scale this up? And that's, that's an another ball game.
0: That's what the Michaelpreneurs are for. That's why we called the podcast Michaelpreneur. I just imagine if more people across the world were turning their inspiration and attention and resources towards solving problems with mushrooms, there's virtually no limit, right, to what can be scaled. I mean, you mentioned the oyster mushroom, it eats whatever's in its path. And I know that they've been trained to eat cigarette butts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of Trad Cotter's work and this concept of micro remediation. So, so somewhat of what you were just speaking about ties into some of that. And I'm very excited to see where that goes in the future as hopefully we gravitate towards, you know, a more plastic free world and more sustainable design and whatnot. Let's talk microdosing for a second. Okay. okay wow, wow, We're, I, we're getting right into it, folks. Nice. <laughs> we're getting right down to business cutting to the chase. What I find fascinating about microdosing is it's a very accessible way for a lot of people to turn on to the psychedelic experience, and psilocybin in particular. Mm-hmm. I still have many friends, you know, in the professional world and all over, that are a little bit hesitant about going in on a macro dose, right? Mm. But microdosing seems to be a great way of introducing people to the benefits of psilocybin. There's a you know ongoing
1: research about it. Do you have a microdosing protocol? I just slowly got back in. I stopped for a long time, actually, because to me, microdosing amplifies everything, right? And uh, I actually was quite hard-headed when I started and like I had like a dose of 0.15 and then I had to keep building down actually because I was noticing myself just being not in a microdosing space but more in like a very light psychedelic journey stage and like this is why dose is very variant uh, for everybody in the world and right now I microdose today and I feel really good um, I had like a really nice conversation with uh, another podcast, the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, about microdosing. And for me, one of the main experiences that I wanted to cultivate is not necessarily what is the common narrative right now in, this. for example, Silicon Valley. You'll be a better employer. You're going to be more efficient. You're going to have 50% more code output or something. That's not interesting to me. But like, what is interesting to me is, to me is like, how can I... Get these things that I get out of the macro experience, and have a little bit of a reminder in my day-to-day life to live a more open heart and like uh, follow my passions and do the things that I truly love doing, while also trying to make a change to the world. And you seem to be doing that very well, right now, if I must say, from an outside perspective. You know,
0: I've followed Jesper's work for quite some time, and it's a real pleasure to be here and to see it come to fruition in person. Um, I want to think out loud for a second. I had some conversations with people about uh, rehabilitation of prisoners in the United States. Mm. And this is a huge issue, right? The penal system and the criminalization of marginalized populations. And it just, uh, there was a story that stuck with me about a formerly incarcerated man who got out and he started uh, hunting for wild mushrooms and foraging as a means of income. Mm. And he did very well for himself. And he actually ran into his former prison warden while selling him foraged mushrooms out in the Pacific Northwest. And I started to think, what if in prisons there was a rehabilitation program to teach people mycology skills? Mm. And how much good that could do both, you know, the prison incarcerated population and Everyone outside too, because recidivism is a huge issue in the United States. Right, people get out of prison, they can't find meaningful and sustainable work because nobody will hire the convicts. Obviously, there's some trends moving in the opposite direction, but I just think that mycology skills is a no-brainer. So, anybody listening, I encourage you. I'd love for someone to start some kind of prison mycology program to teach oyster mushroom cultivation and whatnot.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting way to look at this this big issue of incarnation in the United States, right? And coming again from a a country where we have, like, one of the lowest, I guess you call it criminal populations in the world. We have to, like, rent out our prisons to Norway and, like, all other countries in Europe because, like, there's just not enough people to fill them up. And one of the big reasons is... We treat them as human beings. We don't treat them as like sort of pigs in a pen that you like hoard and like until they're allowed to, to be free. If they're ever allowed to be free. And then that goes into like a whole nother reason. Like why are there so many people incarnated in the United States? It's because of trivial drug laws. Like how many people are like locked up for a little bit of weed or a little bit of mushrooms or like some things that is actually not damaging the, the, their environment at all but it's only possibly damaging themselves and somehow your federal government decided to jump in and put these people in jail because you have a privatized prison industry. Let's get rid of that privatized prison industry. Our prisons are owned by the governments and they have, uh, like it's expensive to keep prisoners there, right, so the government doesn't wanna pay this money so they find ways to actually take care of them so they don't come back. And talking about like ways of integrating prisoners back in like, People that have committed the criminal offense back in society. Like, I think, yes, mycology skills, super powerful. Possibly psychedelic experiences, maybe even more powerful, because you always, like, I personally always reflect on my own experience and like i like i see oh man i was not acting from my center in that moment or i was actually harming this person and a lot of people don't see that stuff in the act right but psychedelics are this ultimate reflection and then giving people skills to like take back into the the, the world that's phenomenal i think that's a really important part of transforming people back into what we still call like a uh, i guess a productive part of society which is a kind of like a shun theorem here on the lake especially you know but that's that's kind of what we want we want to have people that can act in society again that we know are not going to fall back in their old patterns and i think giving them a skill that's applicable yes but let's first look at the issue right because it feels like putting a plaster on a wound instead of like trying to avoid what's what's actually happening in the u.s uh Prison system. You are quite Quite a pithy
0: fellow, my friend. You're very concise. And that makes a lot of sense. I couldn't agree more. I know there has been some work done over the last few decades, like in the San Quentin prison, I believe, right, of giving inmates psychedelics and psilocybin. And um, yeah, that's been swept under the rug and kind of marginalized over the last few years with our glorious war, war on drugs and whatnot. But I think the tides are shifting. And we have people like you and Fungi Academy and lots of activists around the world to thank for that, to be able to say this is effective. This works let's fuck around and find out let's make this happen Mm -hmm. right and and scale it too so speaking of the legal framework around psilocybin and psychedelics it's quite exciting to see it shift it's also creating a lot of opportunities a lot of growing pains a lot of challenges But when I was growing up, the Netherlands was always the place, the one place in the Western world where there was a legal psilocybin industry and people Mm -hmm. would travel there. I myself made a pilgrimage in (laughs) 2007 and got to buy fresh mushrooms there, Mm -hmm. which was actually the first time I ever had fresh mushrooms. I'd had dried mushrooms previously. Why was the Netherlands the one country in the Western world that had a a legal psilocybin industry?
1: That's a good question. And uh, it comes kind of from the 70s when we were uh, like our government at the time really worked hard to try to legalize uh, cannabis which didn't become decriminalized even like legalized or decriminalized it if they found this really weird loophole in the law that is allowing shops to sell it but nobody's allowed to grow it in really big quantities and it's kind of a, a legal mess at this point and other natural psychedelics were never put into what we call the opium laws, so the laws that are of the substance control laws, basically. And even for stuff that is on there, like MDMA, there's a really high tolerance for personal use. For example, you can have up to three pills of any pressed pill. You can have up to one gram of any powdered substance on you. It doesn't matter if it's cocaine or uh, ketamine. You can have uh, like one gram and like you are not be like charged by the i guess you like you called the federal government for having it you will possibly get a fine uh but it will be obviously taken by the 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 police but like i've personally been searched at a at a party and like i I they found something on me and the only thing is like i had to write my name down and like a phone number and i didn't hear anything from them ever again there's nothing on my record so it may it creates this environment of more like yeah, at ease you know like you you felt very comfortable taking those mushrooms because you bought them in a the store and it was legally and although right now mushrooms are not legal to sell anymore you can grow mycelium you're not allowed to pick them which is also weird lupon the law austria is facing something very similar but like a french girl unfortunately uh to herself in a canal in 2008 the year after you've pe- uh, passed and then the european union which is all one country tried to force like a little bit of that um yeah Illegalization onto our country and like the, our government at the time agreed to this, and then again a loophole in the law. Somebody found it, and like you can grow anything that is underground. So that's why these psilocybin truff- containing truffles are still being cultivated and grown. Um, why that actually happened up to recently, ayahuasca is still legal. Like it's our government is not out to try and like stop people from doing like exploring themselves so much, and like it, like look at our. If you look at all the ways we're doing like ne- the netherlands has always been quite progressive i feel like personally we're going backwards a little bit especially compared to you know, some states in the united states like dc just decriminalized any like psilocybin containing mushrooms that's a common term we like to call them sacred mushrooms so there's so many different ones the most common is by the way is the events which most people can cultivate in the world because it's really easy to cultivate but um yeah i think we should way more look into what's happening Right now, because there was never like big corporate business around it in the Netherlands, which is kind of forming in the United States right now. And the the big baddie in the scene right now is obviously Compass Pathways trying to put patents on like ha- holding your hands and soft lighting and soft pillowing, which is absolutely ridiculous. But that's more of a cultural difference, I think, than a, a legal difference.
0: And that's obnoxious. And my understanding is that when one applies for a patent they cast a wide net. So a lot of these things, it's the first application and it will outright be rejected. But still, it's the principle of what Mm. are you going for and what is the message you're sending? I agree 100 percent. Speaking of the legal framework, right? Let's shift out of Western culture and talk about Mexico and Guatemala. Mm -hmm. Fungi Academy operates out of Lake Atitlan, Guatemala. It's amazing here. Mm -hmm. I can recommend it in person for sure. Um, I'm based in Mexico and I have visited Maria Sabina's house and have some experience in those areas. Very beautiful places, but the psilocybin industry, if you want to call it that, kind of exists in a legal gray area in mm. Mexico. For example, there are a few retreats that operate, but most of them are quite underground. And then there are more people who are becoming more audacious and broadcasting what they're doing. Can you speak on
1: the this legal gray area at all? So what I know in Mexico, and like this is just a story that I've been told, I'm not like a lawyer or anything, and I, my Spanish is good enough to get around, but I, like I, I'm not going through like legal papers in Spanish at this stage in my life. And in Mexico, to my understanding, right now the government has decriminalized any uh, natural psychedelic as long as there's an indigenous person in the same space, and this person can also be sleeping. Mm. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. as long as they're in the space. That's what like I've been told by some people that like uh, serve this medicine in Mexico. Um, and in Guatemala, there's actually nothing very specific in the law, except for you cannot like the law that a lot of countries have these days. Anything that in- inhibits like your consciousness is kind of illegal. But there's never been a case against uh, somebody using psilocybin mushrooms. And also in both of the, these countries, Mexico and Guatemala, the government is understanding that the native culture is their heritage and they're trying to protect it more. And they also understand that these sacraments were a big part of the, this this culture. And these are also parts that they still want to elevate a little bit. This is what I, more and more what I get from the side of Mexico. And this is what I've heard from people that are more like my friends that are from Guatemala is also kind of slowly what's happening here in Guatemala. But as far as I know, nobody's ever even been charged for any, anything that had something to do with philosophy mushrooms.
0: Awesome. And I want to just emphasize what a great job Fungi Academy is doing, bringing income into these communities. Um, we've learned throughout this week about different efforts that Fungi Academy is involved in to help benefit the locals? Because you're embedded here in the beautiful Mayan culture and with the Mayan people, and I know there's been some workshops to help teach them how to grow oyster mushrooms and and to help them with with creating abundance for themselves. Right? Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit more on some of the efforts that Fungi Academy is making to help support the local community in which you're embedded here in beautiful Zununa Lake Atitlan?
1: Um, Thank you. And like, um, to me, it's it was like that was a lot of uh, our latest ancestor oliver who really believed in like serving like your local community and then, then they serve you in charge uh, in return I, I guess and one of the things he did when COVID happened he decided to rile up and buy a bunch of like corn for the people and like hand it out and one of my goals eventually is to have, uh, we have a neighbor here who's literally like three minutes away, um, to Massa and she grows oyster mushrooms for a living. She gets spawned out of Shela. Um But the Mayan people are also quite stubborn and they're very, very proud. And um, whenever I brought up like her teaching other local Mayan women, she felt more of this, like, oh, my, I'm going to have competition. This is not good. Instead of her trying to grow her business. So it's... It's like a slow process. You can't just come in and it's like, oh, I'm this person, I know everything here. This is how it should be done. But like, it's a very slow, mindful process. But I feel there's a, a nice balance. There's amazing uh, projects happening here, like well kinds that are making sure that like people, kids can go to school. And like we are, yes, we're at the Fungi Academy, but our main thing has always been education. So we're really f- interested in like teaching kids how to work with the internet and computers and teaching them English possibly. And like, if we can empower some, women, especially right now, because they're often like um, doing more manual labor in this, this day and age here, they're like at home doing crafts or they're, you see a lot of women here, and you've seen it probably carry firewood to their homes and giving, because they need to, or carrying firewood for somebody else and giving them the power to still be able to take care of their kids, because this is why cultivating mushrooms is great. You can do everything inside. Your kids can be running around, you're good. And if Tomasa can do it in her moldy sheds, he's upgrading right now. Everybody can do it. And Well, we don't want to force it because, again, she's been doing this for many years and we don't want to create a sense of like, oh, let's everybody do this. And now there's competition because that's still the mindset a lot of them have. Totally
0: understandable. And one thing I'm drawing parallels to as psilocybin industry and retreats become more and more accessible and popular, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I spent some time in Iquitos down in the Amazon and went. And what I noticed was almost a neo-colonial approach to plant healing where you had a lot of these new age retreat centers and they were making money hand over fist. And then, of course, that turned into abuse of power, in many cases, unscrupulous characters entering the market and creating these remote centers. So that's a conversation we've been having on the podcast is about how can we facilitate a meaningful transition into an accessible and equitable psychedelic retreat space for people Mm. without making these same mistakes that kind of drove some of the centers
1: in Peru specifically under. It's interesting, and this is not something that like, in the coming future I'm very interested in with Funk Academy, especially on the lake. There's so many retreat spaces, and we are an academy at first. We teach people how to safely integrate these things. And if anybody ever wants to show up and do uh, a, a facilitation t- training on like, how to properly facilitate big groups of people for uh, these kind of s- ceremonies, I'm super willing for that to happen. And right now, I'm way more interested in, like, how can we get more people to grow mushrooms and, like, have these power for themselves? Because I see those spaces in the world that do not have the access or do people in the world that do not have the access to come fly to Guatemala and spend a couple thousand dollars on a retreats. Like, how can we help those people? Well, the online classes are great. I can speak as a client myself. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And, like, that's one of the things. And, like, also, we're looking right now and, like, making those more accessible for for everybody, and we're working on some other courses as well, not only focused on psilocybicubensis. And I feel the more people that are growing mushrooms in the world, the more like food security we're gonna have, the more people that we're gonna have that are connected to the, the ecosystem and the land and how nature in its entirety actually functions, right? If you see a fungus go from spore to a mushroom, you understand more what's happening in the wild. It's the same if, if you're gardening, but in most cities, you can't garden because you, like it's really expensive to garden but you can grow mushrooms inside everywhere in the world.
0: I couldn't agree more and I hope more and more people turn on to this, and I think more and more people are. Uh, I used to teach high school Mm. and it was a great detriment to our whole high school ecosystem that we were not able to teach more mycology. Perhaps those containers are being established right now, but I have a friend, he was on the podcast and he's a master cultivator and cultivates at scale in the San Diego area, and he's been partnering with some science teachers and going and doing outreach with high schools about how to cultivate oyster mushrooms I think he's a great example because he started his mushroom business called Mueller's Mushrooms Mm. in high school by cloning a wild oyster mushroom at the creek bed near his house. Somehow learned how to do that. Went around to different local restaurants and asked, does anybody want locally grown mushrooms to support a locally grown business? They all wanted it. Next thing you know, he's got facilities. He's selling all over the world and all that. And I just think it's amazing to know that's accessible to people and that it was a high school kid who did it. It wasn't somebody with an advanced PhD degree. We have Alan Rockefeller on the podcast mm-hmm. and I, he says he never went to college and now he's writing peer reviewed papers left and right and presenting. That's amazing, right? That, that world of mycology is, there's no gatekeepers in a sense. And I find that so exciting.
1: It's extra special, right? It's because Paul Stamets never went to college and Adam Rockefeller never went to college. I believe Michael symbiotes who's like also doing a lot of um, William Petito Brown is also doing a lot of cool stuff in the forefront of mycology and it's just this low entry gateway that a lot of people can jump in and actually because it's so young and there's so much still to discover there's a lot of room for people to discover and like look at universities around the world you can take a bot like you can do a like a master's degree in botany but can you do a master's degree in mycology anywhere I don't think so. no this is just like not a thing because since only since the 70s people have like seen that like all fungi are actually something different than plants can you imagine like that's not even 50 years ago like people were thinking they're putting them in the same category and they're so different obviously and it's such a new field there's so much to discover there's so much room for people to grow in there's so many jobs available actually like we have a whole blog on our website that like goes into like what we call the shroom boom where people can actually see it's like hey you can like start like your small mushroom business, but you can also start working on like producing spawn to empower other people how to do a mu- like create a mushroom business without having to do all the work themselves. There's so much room. Then there's this, this, these new amazing concepts like micro and micro remediation and more and more this uh, fungus, this mic- microspora is getting like a lot of traction because it can actually solely survive in polyurethane plastic, you know, and that's, we have so much of that, this, and that's one of the things that you are always encountered with here in Guatemala because the education is not there and people up to 30 years ago were still comfortable throwing all their shit out in the open, right? And, like, that's the future. Having fungi that can completely decompose plastic. Then we're also talking about, like, how, like, medicinal mushrooms can only not help ourselves but also can help our environment, like the bees. And there's so much more to discover and there's no... I, there's almost no place in academia to discover these things at this stage.
0: Fungi Academy is quite a communal place. That's yeah. the point. I've met so many great people this week. That was one of the main reasons I wanted to come. I cultivate a little bit. Obviously, I want to up my game, but I wanted to meet you guys. I wanted to you know, make inroads and find out what other people mm. are doing. And that absolutely happens. So I'm super excited about that. But my question is, with such a communal atmosphere, are you able to carve out time for yourself
1: for solo journeys and experiences? So right now I'm actually not in the state this is why everybody thinks like oh you're like you're a big part fungi cat you must take mushrooms all the time and actually I've not had a big journey for more than 6 months right now because I'm I'm focusing on like building this this business and that often means also going a little bit more in matrix mindsets and sometimes I have to think about taxes and how I pay everybody's wages and this kind of thing and I I am feel called to this right now and I'm actually kind of in that what Einogganger like I need to, I charge my own battery by being by myself and I'm one of the people that's best in a community with a really nice isolated spot um, and that is quite important for me and I see that the future of many communities, especially for long-term residents, you need to have some privacy and that's uh, although we're all here to empower each other but like it's basically house and mirrors and like I'm um, thinking how, how difficult it is to live with one person, And often that's a romantic connection. I will think about how difficult it can be for like living with 10 to 15 people at the same time and seeing these people every day and being confronted by your own shadows through them every day. It's a journey on itself. (laughs) Very
0: much so. I think that's so important and people underestimate it. And we had this discussion this week with a number of people. But my belief is that a lot of people see In the West, they look for the magic bullet. They want the quick fix. And now psilocybin and psychedelics are kind of becoming the new magic bullet.
1: But it's not that.
0: It's not. No, and I want to get into that in the sense that I have heard numerous people talk about like how many times they have done it and I think that is not the point obviously. And I wanted to mention the author of Immortality Key, which I have that book in my queue. I know it's right behind me. I spotted it. I I believe he he said he's never taken psychedelics, psychedelics. which is a confounding perspective for a lot of people. Like you wrote a book on psychedelics or that incorporates them and you've never taken them. Fantastic perspective. And I, I wish that. More people would embrace this and not. Mm. Of course, I support people who want to do what they want to do with their own consciousness. If it doesn't harm outside entities and whatnot. Right. We have the discussion about criminality and whatnot. But if more like straight laced people were to embrace psychedelic potential and what these medicines and substances can do would be incredible.
1: And I think it's starting to happen more. I think it's starting to happen. And I think that's why Brian's book is so important. Right. Because um, it shows that it's in. Integrate in our culture and our heritage. is this psychedelic sacrament. It's like the we we are more dissociated from the Mazatec people that use sacred mushrooms for thousands and thousands of years, right? But like we're n- we're not from there. But like this is talking about like our pride of our ancestry, of our heritage, of our culture as a Western society. As the Greek, their whole culture was based on this psychedelic sacrament, and now Brian also like not a what he calls a uh, archaeobotanist, has worked with archaeobotanists and found this evidence of ergotized beer that was used in these sacraments. And I think that will turn some people, not everybody, right? Like I think this is not a part why this Job Hopkins studies and like the Imperial College London studies are so important because like it's hardcore evidence that these things actually have a powerful beneficial effect on people that have a lot of issues. And that's what a lot of focus of the karma narrative is right now and focused on the healing of people with PTSD or addiction issues and o- or other mental ailments. And we're, you know, and where we live, we're kind of further ahead and already looking like how can we get the most out of life? by working with these tools and it's not a magic bullet right like sometimes you have to relearn the same lesson a couple times and that's that's all part of it but it's all like they're always a reminder to live uh the path of our highest self like we call it or like the path of our highest excitement and where we feel most empowered and where we can have most impact on not only our ecosystem in our surroundings but we live in a global like like culture right now how can we have that impact and unfortunately you don't have that impact by being a, like a social mar, a social media assistant at Nike. Mm. You gotta carve your own path and I think that's what psychedelics often teach.
0: Hey, Amen, I couldn't agree more. I was actually on that path on a very corporate professional athlete track. I think many of us have the same story. Yeah. So. There was recently an article on Tim Ferriss's website uh, talking about the sustainability of entheogens as this global village starts to demand them more and more. Mm. I know Hamilton Morris has been very involved in talking about the 5 MEO DMT. Buffo, yeah. Exactly. Um, I wanted to talk about that for a second because even combo, right? Not a psychedelic, but there's all kinds of ethical issues as now this industry starts to develop. Peyote, right? Over in. Um, um, Mexico in the desert it's almost been picked clean ayahuasca ayahuasca ibogaine another great example but obviously as more and more mainstream media coverage touches on this and that's one of the reasons i was pushed to start this podcast it's like all of a sudden espn's writing about psilocybin and bbc and everyone how do you see that going forward Uh, by the way mushrooms are not on that list mushrooms can be grown at home it's another reason i think they're the quintessential psychedelic experience for so much beyond the psychedelic experience What, what are some of your thoughts on this matter
1: yeah, so like that's uh, thanks for bringing that up because like yeah, mushrooms are the one that are sustainable and you can build your own medicine. San Pedro can, is also quite sustainable. It's a cactus you can grow yourself, and it's, it grows a lot faster than peyote does. And um, but yeah, there's not enough peyote in the world for everybody. There's not enough ayahuasca at this stage in the world for everybody unless you have a big property somewhere in a tropical climate that you can grow it yourself. But like the only thing that we can that is the natural medicine, right? That is not LSD or 2CB or Five MEO AMT. There's many other uh, like psychedelics that are not so discussed, and right now they're a little bit more foreign because they have these hard, difficult, complex names, and they're they're not natural to an extent. We they're man-made. It, there's an argument that like everything that we make is natural, which I concur to. Anyhow, but mushrooms are like the one natural being that we can cultivate in mass quantities and serve everybody that wants to be served on the planet. Yes, there's a lot of hype around it right now because there's actually, it's. I think the World Health Organization put out like this whole survey of all these different substances. And the the sacred mushroom is actually, uh, together with LSD, on the bottom of the list. There's the least amount of hospitalized cases, even less than marijuana, um, of people using this. So it's like, it shows that it's really safe. People are like, wow, this is safe. It's can actually, like, this is one of the narratives of Silicon Valley, it can help us become more. Uh, efficient, which is a really interesting narrative for the the common narrative. But like the sustainability of it is like what I think is really important and really powerful and and what I like to see, what we kind of advocate is like you can build your own connection with your own medicine. If you... Like get a culture going and you go it on grains th- that's where the ceremony has started right that's where you start putting your attention and you see this be- being developed like develop in your grain jar and then you- it comes the moment that you're going to give it it's bulk substrates which is often coconut coir or horse manure like th- these are the things that are used the most and then you see that like my- mycelium right the main body of the fungus starts eating all that food and then you have mushrooms and you can have so many mushrooms like anybody that grows knows you can never grow like you can never eat that many mushrooms yourself you have to start sharing them like a tiny monotub is like a t- it's like the size of a shoebox right you don't like that's all you need and you, you will have more mushrooms than you personally ever need and there's no other psychedelic that has a similar impact of quantity and quality together I couldn't agree more. You're preaching to the choir here. Kalindi Iyi had a nice
0: way of framing it where he said one spore print could produce a lifetime supply of mushrooms for you and you could pass it down to your grandchildren. Mm -hmm. That's an amazing way to frame it and to think about it. So as psilocybin and psychedelics become more and more accessible and the benefits are being touted and almost universally praised, if we're honest. Mm. Uh, there's more and more government oversight that's coming in. And this is obviously a tricky slope to navigate and there's a lot of differing opinions within the psychedelic community and without the psychedelic community. How much government oversight should there be in psychedelic use and psilocybin, etc.?
1: Well, this is a big question, right? So like what government oversight, I think... It's a hard thing to say, right? Because like, I think there's an extent of why where government is failing is because they're not doing the thing that they should be doing is keeping big business in check and keeping making sure that we're all have, that we're not dumping, that the, these small restaurants are not, this is an example, are dumping the oils in the canals, for example, in the Netherlands. I think that's, that's one of the main reasons we should have government. And, and having giving government power over what like kind of experience an individual can be having over our consciousness that's a whole nother ball game i think that's absolutely out of the question unless the people that are making these legislations are also taking psychedelics and they are doing the, they're making these legislations from in the sense of like we want people to be safe and have these most powerful experiences um all by themselves but if you're going to say no you need to have this license or you need to, you can only do it with this licensed therapist, and that costs two thousand dollars because these people have to pay a lot to keep their license in check because it's something that has to be held with like middens on or something. I don't know that's that i don't see that's the future and that's also why we're all about empowering the individuals right because there's no way if if 50 percent of the population of the world knows how to grow mushrooms there's no way that the government can like crack down on everybody it's just impossible
0: well after this week there's a minuscule more amount percentage of the population that knows how to grow mushrooms so thank you for facilitating that experience and i actually want to mention i think the head of state of gabon did an initiatory experience with Ibogain, which is the first time I've ever heard of a head of state using a psychedelic in a ritualized context, mm-hmm. an entheogen. I find that quite amazing. I'm sure many others have done it and maybe not publicly professed it.
1: Yeah. Well, I think uh, people that take uh, like psychedelics or entheogens like depending like because to me it's not only connecting with God, which is the the, the, the idea of an entheogen, right? less people would want to work in governments. that's the one thing um but there's a lot of people that are claiming that like a like a a leader of uh, these governmental institutions like in the united states you actually have the least democratic power of the west i believe because you have this really powerful head of states the president of the united states like our prime minister doesn't have nearly as much power you know giving those individuals that are the heads the, the spokespeople, the, the people in front, uh, like a mandatory psychedelic experience, I don't think it's a bad idea, actually. Well, I think Darren this McKenna actually is saying like three or five of these experiences before you can even qualify. But then I, I just wonder if anybody ever wants to have that much power, like responsibility mainly and that much work for little reward. If your like your ego has been crashed three or five times because it seems like a quite ego driven job. Sure. Yeah.
0: A thousand percent. Yeah. And I always wonder, like, why are they always businessmen? You know, like Trump, as a great example, who are in office and not research scientists, it's because they're driven in a very divergent path away from that power mongering and fear mongering and whatnot. There were some comments made this week several times throughout the cultivation course by people who worked in the cannabis industry and Mm. are now in mycology about the wayward direction they feel that the cannabis industry went in in the process of market liberalization and commercialization. Um, I don't believe you were there for those comments, but I'm curious if you have any clarifying remarks about, did the cannabis industry go astray as people were claiming? And is that something that is actively being mitigated as the mycology industry becomes more and more popular?
1: Good question. Well, I'm not from the United States, so I'm not really tapped into the cannabis industry over there. What I got (laughs) from what I heard and like what I kind of observe is that like, one of the things that's happening is mass production is happening and mass increase in THC levels. So we want to get higher, we want to get more. And that to me has been like, I think that's what kind of destroyed the, a little bit more of that like counterculture idea of like the cannabis industry, because cannabis has become a monocrop in some spaces right now, which is not, there's that, never like a productive thing for any ecosystem instead of like a small, like, fo- like your local, small cannabis farmer. That like has a local strain that's really thriving. I think that's way more powerful than like just working on these genetics to become more and more powerful. And I think, and you you mentioned psilocybin a lot. And I think this reductionist view of what the sacred mushroom actually is. There's also psilocin and baocysteine and all these other beautiful compounds. And I'm afraid that what like a lot that will happen is that like people will start focusing on creating high like high psilocybin containing breeds or varieties of psilocybe cubensis so they feel that they can give the consumer or the the psychotherapist that they're setting it to a higher quality product because there's more of this in that but I, I don't know if that's actually truth in my opinion and there's another thing is like I'm not interested I, I've had mushrooms from big big growers and it doesn't feel good to me it's like it's such a personal experience for me personally and you know, I'm like, I've also had like big, big weed grows, which don't give me the same experience as a small, like homegrown weed that actually makes me feel more at ease and less, it's a less frustrated being, you know, if you're like surrounded by competition and you're not allowed to have sex as a plant and to grow these big ass buds, that's what's happening, right, with cannabis. Anyhow, I I just don't think like, it, there's gonna be a place for this mass production and it, it's it will find its place but I hope it will stay with the power of the people and more and more the decriminalization is that's why it's more interesting because like it limits big business from happening because you can't start a business on like growing decriminalized mushrooms because then the federal government or even like the local government can still crack down but like personal use decriminalization I think is way more powerful and like encouraging people so what's happening in Oregon right now to have the ability to have these psychedelic assisted psychotherapy sessions i think that that finds its place in the more business setting but like being able to buy like in the netherlands uh, mushrooms in a store i'm i don't know about this yet i I think i think about it all the time and i don't know the answer to this but for now i do know give everybody that power because it's if you know like oliver always used to say Uh, It's like learning how to ride a bicycle. You're never going to forget it. And when you have that skill, you'll have enough mushrooms for the rest of your life. So let's focus on giving the power to the people before we start thinking about Big Corp. And as part of your
0: vision to leverage that potential and power and give it to the people, you're running lots of online classes now. And you just launched one called Psychedelic Mm Journeywork. Care to speak on that for a moment?
1: Oh, yeah, of course. So we collaborated with this amazing, amazing occultist writer, Psychonaut Julian Vane such a well-spoken, well-read British individual who's been uh, teaching this stuff for many, many, many years. And um, our initial, like our goal with this, because we wanted to really make this course that was really on teaching people how to grow the last Because a lot of people are like, oh yeah, we'll teach you how to grow mushrooms. And most people are like, can I grow? Well, basically people are like, can I grow shrooms? (laughs) Uh, But we really wanted to be open. Like this is the way you do it. Correctly and have the most fun, and you're gonna have the most success, and all these things. Um, But we didn't want to just like here. Here's this. We also had this like needed like how can we teach people that have no clue about psychedelic experience, have not never traveled, living in Iowa. I don't know what even that is, what kind of state that is. But like it just came to mind. How can we give those people also a crash course on psychedelic design and like how to get the most out of your journey and how to like prepare if you have a good set and setting and like how to be like basic psychedelic safety so that was always our goal and like we just reached out to julian and he just like he wrote this amazing script i helped him edit it so it was a little bit more dynamic and personal and together with uh holden who's our creative director and he is a classically trained uh film th- filmmaker and we made this basically this beautiful psychedelic uh documentary series that teaches you all about like what's happening cutting at science, but also teaches you like how some indigenous people are traditionally using uh, psychedelics and in unison. So we sell them like we offer them together as you get the mastermind package. So you learn how to grow the mushroom and the the sacrament and then you learn the correct ways of uh, integrating and using them.
0: Fantastic. You make a compelling case for me to sign up later today. So have (laughs) a look for it. Let's talk briefly about circular economies. I had a moment to bond with Neil from mm-hmm. uh, Granhat Zikin, which is a permaculture farm here. Neil is an amazing individual. I'm sure you know him. And we bonded over our mutual love for Radiohead and for nice. all things you know, beautiful in the world. And um, he, I've heard of circular economies, of course, but this was cool to see it put into action and to be there. Uh, how is Fungi Academy contributing to a circular economy in these parts?
1: So um we're actually working on right now getting because like we're a school right and like how do you produce mushrooms on a commercial level that like even in our tiny town of Sunana like we live with 15 people you're surprised how many oyster mushrooms 15 people can eat and and that's kind of what we're working on right now and clarify kind of what's what's happening with the, with new in the circular economy because yes we we support each other by going like to each other's events because we're kind of this village and we have a, although a more progressive village this village mentality is like oh if this pizza party is down the street i happily support them um but i um we've had talks about possibly designing a currency uh, so we can do more exchange kind of deals and that's kind of what's happening and like when we have a tool and somebody else has the same tool uh, like doesn't have that tool and needs it for a little bit because tools are like especially electronic tools like this like if you need a circular saw once in a while why would you buy a fancy new circular saw you can just like have one you can buy as a collective that's that's the things that i see as a circular economy and um seeing it in play here in sununa and there's a lot of aspiration for it but like i've not seen that much in action to be honest like what was neil saying what was actually happening because i've not talked to neil for a while it's
0: similar in a sense in chiapas i live in chiapas and there's a big legacy of autonomy from the Zapatistas mm-hmm. that's left but there's also a huge presence of Coca-Cola there and there's all kinds of issues with water rights and whatnot. Uh, and Coca-Cola mm-hmm. sucking up all the water mm-hmm. so one of Neil's comments that resonated with me was about how it's less about raising the minimum wage for people or paying them more and more about keeping money here. Money comes into the community but then people buy Coca-Cola products and Nestle products and it goes out of the community and I thought, mm-hmm. I thought that was a quite interesting way of framing it because Um, I come from a background where it's normal. We buy the cheapest thing that's made. That's how I was programmed, right? As you go to the store and the organic food costs three times as much. So we don't buy the organic food. Obviously, I've shifted a lot of those paradigms. But this idea of the circular economy, I find very interesting because it feeds into mushrooms so often. I love this concept of having oyster mushrooms thrive off of coffee grounds, right? Mm-hmm. And there are, there are coffee shops that will pay you to take their coffee grounds, and then that's your medium, your substrate. And to quote Chris Connett from Denver Mycology this week, there is abundant market opportunity in this field right now mm-hmm. with tons of low-hanging fruit. Yeah. And there are so many people I'm so excited about, even this week, learning about what they're doing and uh, different, different businesses. So that's my understanding of the circular economy. Okay, okay. I,
1: was, I- Great, because I I thought you were saying about specifically what's happening in Tsununa. And what we're practicing is more of a, I guess it's a vortex economy because what we're doing is very interesting because we sell our courses mainly in the United States and we're spending
0: 90%
1: of that money here. So we're kind of doing something different, it's like a reverse Coca-Cola as you may. So we're, we're taking all that money from the United States from places like LA or New York. And we're spending it here on the local farms, like Gran Hatsikin or the local love pro, uh, the like the fermentation business. Their, I pro, guess you call their it pizza
0: the is amazing. Their pizza is amazing. So good.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And like, I think always buy locally. It's just like that makes so much more sense than like I was so inspired by your friend's story. is like oh, he started mushroom cultivation as a teenager and he started selling to local restaurants. That's what market should be. And then he started growing internationally, and that's what a lot of people want. But I let's try to focus more and this is why mushrooms are powerful right it's like how can we serve more local people because mushrooms don't have a long shelf life so they don't except for shiitake they don't really do well by shipping them all over the world unless you dry them and process them and all these things but like processed consumer products are like something that we kind of more and more evading from and how i practice circular economy i I, you know i'm not a coca-cola fan I'm not like a uh, guy. kind of the Coca-Cola of here. It's like sucking out, like doing all these shitty business structures is beer, local lager, but I'd love supporting my neighbors with what they're doing. And in turn, everybody supports each other. And like, especially here with like a lot of people, um, actually being farmers or alchemists or whatever you want to name it. It's really like, and there's no Amazon here, so it's really way easier have that circular economy because there's no way that we can get like it's really difficult to get stuff shipped here and I, I'm always saying like whatever if you it is within your budget and your power to find more things locally go to your local smaller organic chicken farm buy your eggs there buy your chickens there that's the way that we can like slowly change the world as well and not just out of habit go to the big supermarket chains or out of habit buy Coca-Cola you shouldn't do that for your health or you shouldn't do it for like supporting this this quite evil corporation. And I've been to Chiapas and I've, I've seen the big Coca-Cola factory, which they tried to erase the name of the factory. I don't know if you noticed. Mm-mm. They took the name off the factory recently. And uh, um, yeah, it's just like, there's this amazing, like there's a horrible water shortage in this super luscious, beautiful, like I guess you can call it state of Chiapas. And that's all because of this corporation. So buy less from big corporations. Big cor- this is why we should have governments. These organizations shouldn't exist. Why are they Why are billionaires in the world? Why does these big organizations with so much money and so much power that are actually not supporting the local population?
0: That's a great question. And I I think it's going to become increasingly important with water rights specifically and access to water Mm -hmm. as uh, water futures start trading on Wall Street. And everybody should know Nestle's involvement in, in water and basically they just produce plastic. Right. They take from the global commons and they don't manufacture water. They manufacture plastic and sell it. And, yeah, we could have a whole other podcast about all that. Yeah. Um, some parting shots I wanted to, to talk about. I live in Chiapas, as I mentioned. There are 13,000 different kinds of mushrooms that are on register there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure there are more. That's what the number I've heard. The local indigenous people, the Totsil and, and the Tetsio Maya, have access to over 300 different types that they eat in a a culinary or medicinal capacity. And yet, strangely enough, in mainstream Mexican culture, mushrooms are still ostracized, right? There's like a sense of mycophobia. Do you get a similar sense here in
1: Guatemala? So there is uh, to an extent uh, mycophobia, 100%. Like if a lot of them, a lot of people here really think that most mushrooms are poisonous or bad for you. There's this is uh, a really beautiful uh, local mushroom that's foraged here during the rainy season. It's called like, I don't even know they like they have It's, it has a Mayan name. It doesn't have a Spanish name. They just call them ongos. <laughs> but the, the Latin name is called pseudo fistulina radicata. And I can like send it to you. So if you can put it in the notes, make it a
0: mushroom of the week if you haven't already.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a, well, if it starts fruiting again, like we should make it the mushroom of the week. Um, so, Like there's a lot of mushroom foraging happening here. Unfortunately, where we are right now, it's a really, uh, it's an area that's really struck by agriculture and there's not much old growth forest anymore. And even if you go over the hills, it it happens a little bit more and there's a lot more knowledge. But there's, yeah, it's, since we are living in a Mayan population, there's definitely that connection, right? They used to consume up to like 35 different psilocyte species here. But like a big part of what what like happened here, and especially during the Civil War, a lot of that like Mayan knowledge got lost where they feel like the church is telling them not to go anywhere near mushrooms. So that's more kind of what they're doing. But like I, I've, I've talked to some, uh, especially younger kids who are really interested in that they go out in the forest and uh, especially in the Old growth Forest here, it's like just the same as Chiapas or Oaxaca. It's one of the most biodiverse places in the world regarding mushrooms. And that's one of the things that I'm really interested in like cultivating and like at the moment, like we have a little bit more time and we can like, especially during the rainy season, I like, take people out and become like kind of like kind of what happening in Oaxaca with the, the, the sacred mushrooms, like kind of like fungal tourism of like taking people out and like going on these mushroom forays of, and like seeing a bunch of mushrooms that probably never seen before. I think that's really interesting and hoping to find elders mainly that can then educate the next generation of Maya and see that there's also a business for them to be like a mushroom foraging guide, like what's happening in most of the Western world right now. It's like, it's a good business to take people out for a mushroom forays. It's a great business. Yeah, and we could teach the local people how to do this as long as we find the elders and like, create a market for them.
0: And that's something I hope to facilitate In southern Mexico. I know there are people doing it, but specifically in Chiapas, the only research that I found that's translated into English is one or two dissertations Mm -hmm. that are very academic, you know, ensconced in the language of academia. And I think, how come this hugely abundant and available resource? is not more accessible to people. It's growing everywhere around them. I think Fungi Academy Instagram shared a meme that I really liked that had the Geico gecko. And it goes, I just saved a bunch of money on groceries by switching to finding them in the woods, (laughs) right? And in Mexico, they have different uh, ferias de hongos. Like there's one in Oaxaca, one in Michoacan, one in um, Veracruz. Mm. But still, when I talk to the average person and friends there, they have no knowledge of this. And you have to go read a fucking dissertation to find this. And so I'm very thankful of people like Double Blind, right? the magazine, using pop culture as a vehicle to promote this incredibly important information. And Fungi Academy, I love the way you guys harness pop culture to teach and to educate and to Mm -hmm. outreach. So I just thank you again for everything you're doing and for having me here. And are there any other issues you wanted to promote or touch on before we wrap up today?
1: What's coming to mind, and uh, thanks for also having me on. It's been, uh, it's been a blast. It's fun. Uh, like, it's kind of rare to do podcasts first in person right now. And that's, Hell yeah, bro. I was like, kind of like, I want to do a podcast. And we talked about this before, but like, uh, Instagram Live to me is like what, like, that's the most, I'm not going to do a high produced podcast with talking to people online, because that's, this is what it's about for me, like having, being able to look you in the eyes and, and seeing that. And although like so that's that's what's happening we're gonna make something smaller with like less famous people you're having all you're doing video great but having all the great like micropreneurs on already but and what I do think is like one of the big changes that we have to see in education right now is like let's like why is so many courses online that are just basically paying a bunch of money for uh, seeing a worse version of having being in a classroom with somebody it just doesn't make sense to me like education is where it's all about we talked about this plastic problem we talked about like like this this micro we talked about like um, circular economy all these things lead back to education if you just educate people on this is why these things are important How, why are we still not changing the face of education we're living in this pop culture, like you're saying like we are changing our culture is changing so fast why is education lagging so behind in the mainstream if you go to university you still have to sit a b- bunch of hours in a boring class or somebody is just trying to fill their time as a teacher Let's make, like This is why I think the future of online education is so powerful because you can have, like our courses are built around this idea of like one lesson should have one thing to teach and it should be fast and you should be able to give that lesson within five to 10 minutes. Otherwise you're just beating around the bush and then actually a lot of knowledge gets lost. What? why we're not focusing on actually teaching people stuff instead of dumping knowledge on them. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? And I oh, think I used to
0: teach high school. Yeah. yeah. we can Touch on that. Sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And you probably know that you have the curriculum and this is like, I wanted to always be a teacher in life, but then you like, find out like a high school teachers, like you get this curriculum and you have to teach whatever is within this curriculum. It doesn't make sense to me. You know, it's like, where's the f- freedom of like excitement? And I think we should focus more on people that are mentors. Than like uh, teachers that are just teaching history the of their lives, and you know maybe their teaching style can like influence one or two people in a class in a year, but like what else is it gonna do? So I invite everybody to like however whatever they're learning everywhere in the world. Like how consciously are you? Are you just learning this book? How are you getting the most out of this experience? How are you sharing this knowledge? Are you just d- dumping it on people, or are you like asking questions? And I think that's why. Being a podcast host is really interesting. It's like because you start understanding that asking questions to yourself is the best way of learning, and this is also what like is the ultimate reflection of being a teacher. Because like you're writing something down, you're preparing for your class. Like wait, do I actually know this? And then you're asking yourself that question, and then you go look it up. And bless the power of the internet. Oh my god, <laughs> we can look everything up. And then you get the answer. And by asking that question first and then figuring it out, that's the most powerful way of learning. Instead of having this information that jumped in your lab basically inconsensional consensual. consensual. It's like this is what you have to get. Well let's move forward and let's go from what actually excites us.
0: I think that's a beautiful point to end on. So thanks again for coming on the Michelpreneur podcast. You have an open invitation so I guess whenever I'm back here in person we'll have to do this part two, okay?
1: Oh, that sounds great. great. Thanks. Yeah. All right man. Cheers. Cheers.
0: There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many micropreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the Mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up. At Mycopreneur Podcast, that's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a micropreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen. Bienvenidos. Welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode. And also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Micropreneur podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.